Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. Episode 81, Warfaring Strangers, Prolegomena to Second Century Christianity. Back in episode 64, we discussed the mystery of early Christianity. The basic purpose of that episode was to introduce Christianity to the stage of our narrative, but beyond that, our main point was that we really don't know as much as we'd like about the first two centuries of this thing we call Christianity. We know it was a development of Judaism, and that apocalyptic strands within Judaism were particularly influential in its DNA, hence all the references in the Gospels to an imminent end of the world, and the world's remaking with a divine judgment. We also know that Christianity in its earliest manifestations was political, probably linked in some way, theories abound here, but there is some kind of link for sure, with Jewish struggles against Roman domination. We know it pretty quickly developed these churches, ecclesiae, religious communities in major urban centers around the eastern Mediterranean, and we know this because the Pauline letters to the various churches, and some of these are genuine first century material, address them and even talk about issues of what we might call proto-orthodoxy. That is, Paul is trying to set these different churches straight on proper doctrine and behavior, trying to create a Christian standard practice in the first century CE. Now it's the second century CE, and this is when Christianity first appears in a big way in the literary record as something we can really call Christianity. Non-Jews start to take notice of it, for one thing. We saw a satirical portrayal of a Christian woman by Apuleius in episode 73 of the podcast. At least we think it was a Christian lady. It could have just been a regular Jewess. And in episode 64, we saw a letter from Pliny the Younger to the Emperor Trajan asking what he should do about the Christiani running around in the province he was governing, causing trouble and being religiously narrow-minded. We shall see later in the podcast that the 2nd century Platonist philosopher Celsus wrote our first known anti-Christian polemical tract, a work of Platonist perennialism entitled The True Account. So this movement had come onto the radar of philosophic Platonism in our period as well. They were definitely making a stir, and by the, in the 2nd century people really knew that they were called Christians and they were some kind of movement. But... We also see in the second century Christians arguing amongst themselves about what genuine Christian doctrine and practice are. And this is kind of the subject of this episode. This argumentation is important for us for a number of reasons. In Christianity, there developed a new idea. We'll call it orthodoxy. That there was one truth and that the world could be divided basically into two camps the Orthodox, and everyone else. In the old days, you could say, oh, you worship Isis, we worship Demeter. Great stuff, carry on. We call her Demeter, you call her Isis. Same sort of thing. This was the mainstream of religious practice throughout the Mediterranean region during the whole period we've been discussing in the podcast up till now. Often known as paganism, but more accurately known as traditional pre-Christian Mediterranean religions. They were sloppy, they were manifold, they borrowed, they flowed into each other, but no one had ever raised any problems about that. Now, 
there were the true God and there were false gods, and you couldn't be sloppy about your religious worship anymore. Alongside this idea of orthodoxy, there developed the idea of heresy. Heretics were people within Christianity, but whose salvation was at stake because they held teachings which diverged from orthodoxy. Now, in the second century, we see the first stirrings of both of these ideas in a big way. And this is obviously important for the history of Western esotericism, because this dialectic of exclusion and inclusion would structure Christian history so deeply right into later ages up to the modern age in many ways. One of the major approaches to Western esotericism, as followers of the academic field are well aware, is to conceive of Western esotericism as a category of rejected knowledge. While we at the podcast don't subscribe to this definition as sufficient, and if you listen to our interview with Koko von Stuchrad, you'll get some cogent reasons why it is not a sufficient definition. Nevertheless, heterodoxy, or outsider status, is very important in esoteric movements in many ways, right? And indeed, the concept of esotericism itself implies its own set of insider-outsider distinctions, to which the legacy of the Christian orthodox heretic distinction will become an important ingredient as antiquity moves into the Middle Ages. And one final interesting thing about the rise of heresiology in Christianity, about the construction of Christian others by Christians, is that very often orthodoxy would come to reject esoteric Christianity for many reasons, but sometimes specifically because of its esoteric claims. We'll see this in our next episode when we look at Basilides, for example. Here was a Christian teacher with an explicitly esoteric message. He seems to have framed his teachings as esoteric oral material inherited through a lineage, going back to Jesus through the Apostle Peter. And heresiological authors attack him for this, or they deny that he really had the esoteric lineage that he claimed he had. So, to some degree, and I'm generalizing here, one of the things that heresiologues attacked their enemies for was for claims to an esoteric, deeper Christian teaching. And we will see this attack brought against, for example, the religious teachers often called Gnostics. They claim to have an esoteric wisdom, but we, the Orthodox, know that they don't, or that there is no esoteric wisdom. Now, we've introduced the idea of Gnosticism in the podcast, a problematic label, but one which is applied to a number of early Christian movements which show up from about the second century onward. In the coming episodes, we're going to discuss the three main quote, Gnostic thinkers of the second century. These are the early Gnostics, Basilides, Valentinus, and Marcion. And there's really no point in agonizing about whether or not we should call them Gnostic, because we can very easily agree to call them Christian, which they were by any outsider definition, although their claims to Christianity were strongly rejected by the growing Orthodox consensus or rather by what eventually won out as the consensus amid an absolutely roiling religious culture with serious diversity and internal wrangling going on right through the 4th century and beyond. These thinkers would in fact become heretics, 
but this was a long process. It begins in the second century, I will argue, but I don't want to give the impression that there were heretics yet in the second century in the strong sense of the term. So what is a heretic? What was orthodoxy and how did all this stuff develop? In this episode, we want to flesh out our answer to these questions by going through some important historical landmarks in the process whereby a thing called orthodoxy was born in the history of ideas and brought with it a whole new category of other, the heretic. And while we go through this history and also do a few thought experiments about second century Christianity, we're also going to introduce these very important uh, heresiological authors and the genre of heresiology, because although sort of outside the pale of what we might consider Western esotericism, a lot of Christian esotericism we only know about by reading the accounts in heresiological authors. So it's very, very important to get your head around who these people were, when they were writing, what they were writing, what they were up to, because we're going to be seeing an awful lot of them. A lot of these heresiological authors are profoundly and literally anti-esoteric. We've met with them in a few episodes, and when we spoke with Michael Williams about the problems with Gnosticism, a gentleman known as Irenaeus of Lyon in particular was mentioned quite a bit. So this is a second century character. Now, what is heresiology as a genre? Keen listeners will be familiar with the term doxography. Doxography is writing about philosophy or maybe writing the history of philosophy. Aristotle indulged in doxography in his work, The Metaphysics. To take an early example, he basically ran through the ideas of all his philosophical forerunners that he was interested in, most often in order to show how they were wrong because they disagreed with his ideas, or how they were right because they agreed with him or sort of foreshadowed him. His testimony for all its problems is one of our best sources for the early Pythagoreans, and when we talked about Pythagoreanism, we were looking a lot at what Aristotle says about them. Our biggest surviving work of doxography from antiquity is Diogenes Laertius's Lives of the Eminent Philosophers, written sometime in the 3rd century CE. And we have quoted from it a lot in the course of the podcast already. In many cases, as with the Stoics and other Hellenistic schools of philosophy, whose original works are almost totally lost to us, Diogenes and his colleagues, the doxographers of late antiquity, are our only source for the doctrines of these thinkers. So we have to try to reconstruct them from quotes and summaries in people like Diogenes. This is doxography. Now, we need to talk a little bit about the origin of the term heresy. In the course of the Hellenistic period, philosophy had begun to become formalized. The philosophic schools gradually evolved into a complex cultural institution. We shouldn't imagine something like a modern school or university system, but more like a kind of recognized social arrangement where a teacher would gain a reputation and those with the leisure, wealth, and wit to study philosophy would travel to stay with them and study. So this happened in Athens a lot, but it happened in many other places as well. Some schools, like the early academy, who were the successors of Plato at Athens, the Stoics, the Epicureans, and many others, had what's called a scholarchy, a succession of leadership of the school, or like head teacher, which would be handed down from teacher to student. There were norms. Norms to what it was to do philosophy had been developing throughout the Hellenistic period. This is the point. As time went on, and what nowadays tends to be called the post-Hellenistic period came along, here we can think of our episodes on the late Roman Republic. 
the first century BCE, basically. This is the time period we're talking about. This school culture became more and more ingrained in philosophy. In the second sophistic period, this philosophical education even became something of a sine qua non for educated orators with no pretensions to being serious philosophers at all. Perhaps something like how 19th century upper-class schoolboys in England learned Greek and Latin as a matter of course, regardless of whether they were particularly interested in the classics or had designs on becoming classicists later in life. It was a normal and expected accomplishment for a cultivated gentleman of the upper classes. Now, the name for a philosophical school in Greek was hieresis. This is etymologically just means kind of a choice, but technically it means a school of thought in philosophy. A hieresis in the context of philosophy at large didn't imply anything beyond a recognizable affiliation to one of the greats. Stoicism, Epicureanism, Peripateticism, Platonism, these are all post-Hellenistic hieresis. But you could also be a Pythagorean, as we've seen, even though the old-school pre-Socratic Pythagoreans were long dead as a movement. So the point was, to some degree, the idea of a movement or of an intellectual lineage, a kind of constructed filiation in the history of ideas. And we should note here, by the way, that these terms like Platonist and Stoic are all modern coinages, but they pretty much work. In the ancient times, you would have more likely said uh, for example, for the Epicureans, you would have called them the people of the garden, or the Platonists, you would have called those following Plato. But these terms, although they're modern, they basically get the point across. Now, returning to doxography. And this is the point of this kind of short run through of developments in philosophy as a cultural institution. The genre of doxography had kept pace with this rise of schoolcraft by increasingly discussing different philosophers in terms of their hieresis. We see this in Diogenes Laertius. Christian heresiology, as a genre, is viewed simply anyway. Basically, doxography transformed with a polemical motive. So this is doxography not like Diogenes, who just wants to relate lots of cool anecdotes about earlier philosophers and maybe regale you with a poem or two of his own composition about them. No, this is more like the doxography of Aristotle, whose motives are to rethink philosophical history in terms of his own philosophy, which is the correct philosophy. Christian heresiologists take this rethinking of the past in terms of correctness to the nth degree. Now, when Irenaeus composed his work, Ad Versus Hieresis, to give its Latin title, his audience will have been familiar with the term hieresis as meaning school of thought. So the title should be translated as against the schools of thought, although everyone translates it as against heresies. We don't yet have heresy in its full-blooded sense of black and white absolute rejection. This is the point. The schools of thought presented by Irenaeus are certainly incorrect and sometimes absolutely incorrect, but it does not necessarily follow that they are to be killed, for example, nor that they are damned for all eternity. Now, if we fast forward a century and a half or so in time, in the reign of Constantine, at the end of the third, beginning of the fourth centuries, Christianity will become an imperial religion in a highly centralized, militarized empire recovering from a series of major crises in the third century. This is now a military dictatorship. 
In this historical era, things have evolved such that ideological agreement has become part and parcel of political hegemony and control. There's no more room at the beginning of the 4th century for officially sanctioned openness about what the Christian message might mean or what the Christian practice should be, any more than there's room for old-fashioned quibbling about the absolute power of the emperor and his military junta. When you adopt the stance that there is only one school of thought, which is correct, and moreover that the penalty for being wrong about this is eternal damnation or execution here in the mundane political sphere, well then, the stakes have become really high. And we can see, and this is all very oversimplified, but we can see the way in which our familiar term heresy developed out of the more benign philosophical hieresis. But this development, it must be stressed here, took place over centuries of time. In the second century, to get back to where we are in our narrative, things were still wide open. We know that Irenaeus was being read in Egypt soon after he composed his work, and we can conclude that his work was fairly influential in his day. But let's take a look at second century Christianity more broadly for a minute and try to re-emphasize how diverse it was. In retrospect, it can seem like orthodoxy was a done deal as soon as the heresiologues started sort of inventing it. But this is only the case because the side which eventually won, the side of imperialized Council of Nicaea Christianity, actively suppressed the intellectual rivals within the empire retroactively for hundreds of years into the past, in effect generating heresy in the whole history of Christianity. When Eusebius writes his history of the church around the year 300 CE, he is reimagining the earlier centuries of Christianity through a lens of orthodoxy. Reading Eusebius and interpreting the second century based only on him would be something like interpreting the 19th century by reading, say, Lenin or Hitler. Things are going to look awfully tidy and absolute, and you'll miss most of what was actually going on. However, in the second century, we had, first of all, let's remember, hundreds of Christian writings in circulation. We're not just talking here about the many so-called Gnostic tractates, although we are talking about them as well. We're talking about the whole massive group of writings retrospectively known as Apocrypha, Pseudepigrapha, and more generally just extra-canonical Christian writings. Now, Apocryphon means secret book, and these texts do indeed often present themselves as esoteric Christian documents. So we're going to have a lot of interest as the podcast progresses in looking at the history of these apocrypha and what role they played in Christianity. Then there are pseudepigrapha of all sorts. These are books claiming to be by someone important, say Mary, the mother of Jesus, various apostles, that sort of thing. And many of these are in circulation and being read by Christians in the second century, many of which wouldn't make the cut later on. As for extra-canonical writings, generally they only become that once a canon has been established, and no canon was really established until, well, it's never actually established across the board, but anyway, Irenaeus himself in the mid-2nd century was instrumental in beginning the process of saying, this is what will basically become the Christian Bible, the New Testament. Those texts don't count, these texts do count, but he didn't finish the process. So to sum up, the move toward the creation of orthodoxy is afoot in the 2nd century, And the seeds of the idea of heresy are there too, but neither idea has yet solidified into the absolutist discourse of later centuries. 
That isn't to say that tempers weren't flaring very hot indeed in the second century, but it is to say that flare as might the temper of someone like Irenaeus, the social environment was not one wherein he could, for example, back up his arguments with actual physical suppression or punishment of the schools of thought which he was attacking. That would come later. We do have writers like Tertullian, writing in the later second century, who every page drips with hatred for his intellectual opponents, and you you feel very strongly that he would love to be able to lock up or even execute some of these heretics, but he couldn't do it yet. Aside from writings, there were radically opposed Christian styles of life and thought. We had martyrs in plenty, radical firebrands who publicly refused the traditional norms and were punished by the state for it. There were also intellectuals who took a tolerant or even inclusivist view of, for example, the legacy of Hellenism and the Roman state's legitimacy. These were, you know, sort of cosmopolitan Christians of the big cities. There were many Christians in the second century who were, well, Jews. There were a wide variety of different ritual practices defined by different groups as the essential core of Christian ritual. There was absolutely no consensus on points like Christology, the relationship between all the different aspects of God, man's fate after death, eschatology, the role of the church in the process of salvation, you name it. Christianity was radical in many ways and increasingly identifiable to outsiders as a new thing with its own name, you know, but it was hugely diverse when we look at the range of second century Christian ideas and practices. Let's look at two hypothetical second century thinkers for a moment, two quite different souls who have in common A, that they're followers of Christ, and B, that the heresiologues just then beginning to start writing, would consider them seriously in error on numerous theological and practical points. So these are two second century heretics in waiting. One fellow, we'll call him Rupert, is a simple man living in rural Egypt. He's part of a church community. His church is made up of Jews, who are very excited about the recent fulfillment of the Jewish prophetic tradition, which came about when Christ was born and did his thing. Rupert is illiterate, but some of his fellow church members are reading, and they're reading all kinds of interesting texts. Gospel texts that we know as canonical nowadays, but also things like the Acts of Peter, perhaps some Enochian material, and God knows what else. And they're having very interesting conversations about it all, some of which Rupert is picking up. Now, no one has showed up in their little village to set them straight on what writings are to be considered properly Christian, and they haven't asked the question themselves. So they're reading all kinds of stuff, and it's all grist for the mill. It's all Christianity. Main topics of speculation in their conversations after church include, since the world hasn't ended yet, but it's clearly going to end very soon, when should we look forward to this happening? What is our proper relationship with the other Jews down the road who reject Jesus? Do we need to observe this or that element of traditional Jewish law? This is Rupert's world. Now, up the river in Alexandria lives another second century Christian. We'll call him Steve. Steve is a Greek speaker. He never bothered to learn Egyptian. And he's from a good family. So he's been round the Grand Tour. He learned a little philosophy, maybe at Athens. And now he's finally settled back in his hometown where he goes to dinner parties and discusses religion and philosophy with his circle of friends, which includes pagans, atheists, Stoics, Platonists, and a host of non-denominational folks who are just, you know, sort of cultivated people who are nice to have around. Steve is also a Christian, like Rupert, but he's not a Jew. His ancestors were traditionally Hellenic people. 
and let's say they were Roman functionaries, local small government functionaries. Now, this new religious message of Christianity has caught his eye, providing something satisfying on many levels, which his lessons in Platonism and whatnot failed to provide. Nevertheless, Steve knows a few obvious truths from philosophy, and these need to be squared with the Christian scriptures he's reading in his church. Therefore, Steve turns naturally to the teachings of a local Christian intellectual called Basilides, who understands that it's okay to be easygoing and cosmopolitan in matters of religion. And he knows that since the highest god must of course be immaterial and even ineffable, this god cannot have created the cosmos directly. He must have emanated a logos, or a series of logoi in fact, which did the job of actually manifesting reality. Steve is, in short, a demiurgist, and actually holds that there are eight such hypostatic emanations in the chain of creation of the world, which some other Christians might say makes him an octotheist, but he would be able to counter that with sophisticated arguments drawing on Middle Platonist metaphysics, showing that he's in fact more monotheist than they are. Steve's Christian worldview incorporates astronomical astrological science, integrating the powers of the planetary spheres into his view of the cosmos and man's place in it. He performs no religious rituals whatsoever. Christianity, as the culmination of true philosophy, has rendered all such superstition unnecessary. Although it's okay to participate in other people's rituals to avoid ruffling their feathers. Indeed, since there are obviously esoteric and exoteric levels of Christianity, and the exoteric Christians, people like Rupert, um, who... Let's face it, Steve would never meet in the normal course of things because Rupert is a lower-class, village, illiterate dude. But nevertheless, Steve recognizes that people like that, they probably get some value from their elaborate quasi-Jewish ritual practices, and that's as it should be. But Steve himself doesn't need to do that kind of stuff because he is an esoteric, philosophic Christian. Now, Steve and his friends debate questions like whether or not Christ had a physical body or one made of pneuma. And... Whether or not the cycle of reincarnation, because of course, as Christians, we know that everyone reincarnates upon death. Whether this is governed by the planetary ruling deities, or depends rather on the moral state of the individual soul. These are the sorts of uh, burning questions of Christian religion for Steve. So we've given these two made-up examples of 2nd century Egyptian Christians. Made up, but entirely plausible. To give a flavor of the vast range of ideas and practices found in Christianity in the early centuries. This is the messy world against which the heresiologists were struggling. Now, at this point, a little timeline might be helpful. So let's go back to the beginnings of Christianity and survey some of the heresiological landscape for the first few centuries. We were talking earlier about the rise of schoolcraft in philosophy of the post-Hellenistic period. But don't get it twisted. Philosophy was a rich menu from which thinkers could take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and mix it all up together. And this brings us to Philo of Alexandria, writing in the first century CE. As listeners will remember, Middle Platonist ideas, Stoic ideas, esoteric approach to Jewish scriptures, religious Judaism, all in a single package, with no problems. So Philo sets the tone for what was possible in the Greco-Roman world in terms of intellectual and religious life together. This is, indeed, what the heresiologues were up against when they attempted to create orthodoxy. Philo also incidentally gives us a flavor of Alexandria as an intellectual climate. The place was an absolute cosmopolis, and it's no accident that a huge number of important esoteric thinkers, among them Basilides, Clement, 
Origen, and probably Plotinus, were associated with that city. Now, speaking of the Jews, we saw earlier in the podcast that a major anti-Jewish military campaign resulted in the destruction of the Temple at Jerusalem in the year 70 CE. And it's probably worth mentioning here that in the years 115 to 16, early 2nd century, there was a major Jewish uprising in Cyrene and Alexandria, and there was a kind of long, slow-burning revolt in Palestine between about the years 135 to 138. So things in the 2nd century were not cool between Rome and some Jews. And this is important background when we look at the ways in which Christians began increasingly to distance themselves from Jews in our period. This is probably relevant. Now, Basilides of Alexandria flourished sometime in the early 2nd century. We'll discuss this fascinating figure in the next episode. He would become a major target of heresiologists as they began to weed out the unacceptable from the acceptable Christianity in the middle of the century. Basilides lived roughly during the end of Plutarch's life and the beginning of Apuleius's life to contextualize him in terms of the podcast so far. Now, sometime in the early second century, another man lived whose name you have to remember. This was a man called Justin, later known as Saint Justin Martyr in all of the major Christian denominations. He studied philosophy, finally hit on Platonism as the best thing going. As we shall see, Platonism was often a gateway drug for Christianity in antiquity. And then at last, disenchanted with Platonism, became a passionate Christian. He moved to Rome and wrote a bunch of books and was eventually martyred, legend has it, for refusing to worship the traditional Roman gods. Good. Now, Justin is often considered the first Christian apologist. That is, he wrote books for a non-Christian audience, telling them why Christianity was good and true. He drew very strong distinctions between Jews and Christians, so we can also see in his surviving works an important step toward forging a strongly independent non-Jewish Christian identity, and that earlier um, political background of constant Jewish revolts may have played some factor in this forging of his identity as well. He incorporated much of Greco-Roman philosophy into his teaching, arguing, for example, that virtuous individuals like Socrates had in fact been Christians avant la lettre, although, of course, they couldn't be fully Christians until Christ came along since he was the embodied logos of God. And Justin wrote our first major heresiological work, The Lost Against the Schools of Thought, or Adversus Hereses, around the year 150. So that's an important work to remember, even though it doesn't survive, it uh, informs much of the later heresiological genre. Tertullian, a 2nd and 3rd century Latin language heresiologue, who was a real piece of work, as we mentioned earlier, considers Justin the founder of heresiology. And although Justin's against the schools is lost, as I mentioned, everyone sort of cites him. Crucially, Justin connected certain teachings, and these basically are thinkers like Valentinus, who are often referred to as early Gnostics, with Simon Magus, a character who shows up in the Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament, and who in the extra-canonical Acts of Peter and other works, he basically engages the Apostle Peter in a magical duel in which Simon says, I can fly, but Peter says, aha, I can make you fall with the power of Jesus. So seemingly, with Justin Martyr, we get our first Gnostic heretic, Simon Magus, and later heresiologists ran with this. So we get an image of a kind of Gnostic contagion stemming from Simon and corrupting the church from within. So this idea of tracing all the Gnostics back to Simon 
seems to come from Justin Martyr. After Justin, we want to move on to the ironically named Irenaeus of Lyon, whom we've met already, whose own Adversus Hieraces, against the schools of thought, written about the year 180, drew on Justin's work and was really a game changer in terms of widespread acceptance of a kind of manual for what right-thinking Christianity should be. Irenaeus' name is ironic because it means something like peaceful one in Greek, but he wasn't really that peaceful. As we know, he attacks a load of thinkers whom he considers to be in error, including a group he calls Gnostics, and so he kind of immortalizes Gnosticism as a category, and we've been tussling with it ever since. From this time on, the late 2nd century, the heresiological genre grows by leaps and bounds. Sometime around the year 235, 3rd century, we have Hippolytus or Pseudo-Hippolytus of Rome, who wrote against the schools of thought. <laughs> a more vitriolic take on the same basic territory is Irenaeus. Attitudes are starting to harden. Tertullian writes against the schools in Latin a bit later, and also attacks, you know, the Valentinians and all the usual suspects, but with even more vitriol. At this point, he's talking about the joys Christians will enjoy in the afterlife as they watch their uh, intellectual enemies burn in eternal hellfire. And so much for early heresiology. I hope this, this little list, this little kind of de developmental chart of the 2nd and 3rd centuries is going to be helpful as we go forward in the podcast. We can maybe discuss Eusebius of Caesarea here as a kind of fitting end to this line of inquiry. Sometime just before the year 300, Eusebius wrote the History of the Church or Ecclesiastical History, a foundational revisionist account of the origins and development of Christianity, and one full of the demolition of heretics. So there's a lot of heresiology mixed in. And maybe in Eusebius we can really see something like the concept of heresy as we know it today coming into its own. This writer was part of a movement toward a unified and indeed imperialized Christianity, which would soon become a political project under Constantine I, who reigned from 306 to 337 CE, and who oversaw the Council of Nicaea, whose Nicene Creed remains the defining article of faith for Catholics to this day. An actual Orthodox hegemony, de facto, would not be established for centuries to come, we should emphasize. But with Eusebius, we see a kind of literary affirmation that this is the order of history and the new world order. One church, one doctrine, one emperor. Now, hopefully we've given some useful historical outline here on which to hang the various figures of early Christianity we shall be covering in upcoming episodes. Now let's turn to a few points relevant to the question of early Christian esotericism. We may have given the impression that this whole heresy business was cut and dried, but it wasn't. We shall be discussing some thinkers in coming episodes who were flatly rejected by the growing orthodox consensus. Take Basilides. He was an influential teacher in his day, and we know that there was a Basilidian school within Christianity for a couple hundred years after he died. Then, nothing. His hieresis had been successfully stamped out. None of his writings survive in any length. But there are many tricky borderline cases, and these are fascinating. One of them is Clement of Alexandria, who lived from around the mid-2nd century until the year 215 CE, Clement was an immensely learned, philosophically sophisticated, and also passionately Christian author and teacher, and everyone in the early church wanted to use aspects of his writings and thought to help build orthodoxy. However, Clement also spoke of an inner elite of Christians whom he calls, wait for it, 
Gnostics. And he may have taught a doctrine of universal salvation through repeated reincarnations, along with an emanationist angelology where humans can transform into angels and ascend towards God. Now, this stuff is not exactly a staple of the emerging consensus, but no one wanted to call Clement a heretic because they needed his juice. So we're going to be devoting a lot of time in the podcast to this fascinating thinker and to his relationship with esoteric Christianity down the ages, because Clement has never been rejected by Christianity. He's always had a very problematic sort of love-hate reception. We're also going to be covering the great origin of Alexandria, of the next generation or so after Clement, who is also teaching a number of heterodox, in retrospect, doctrines such as universal salvation again, the pre-existence of souls, and so on. But again, Rune wanted origin for orthodoxy, especially as his exegetical work on the Christian canonical texts was second to none. He was a supreme philologist, and his esoteric reading methods opened up doors of interpretation which were essential for the church as it made up new doctrines, like the doctrine of the Trinity, and then kind of went back to the scriptures and tried to find them. As with Clement, Origen was a difficult borderline case. An esotericist who was so influential that his thought remains in the DNA of Christianity today and occasionally pops up as a proper resurgence of Christian esotericism. Now that's all the time we have for in this rather information-packed episode. I hope it's been useful. I thought that for non-specialists, some introduction to heresiology, the idea of heresy, the idea of orthodoxy, and a little bit of the historical development of these ideas in the second and third centuries would be very, very useful as we go forward, because we're more interested in the esoteric thinkers, but often the esoteric thinkers are only presented to us via the voices of heresiologues. And speaking of heresy and heresiologues, in the next episode, we are going to discuss the great Basilides, a very, very interesting thinker, unfortunately, whose writing is completely lost to us because of these heresiologues. Join us then, and until then, be like the doctrine of the eightfold emanation of the highest god, and stay esoteric. <laughs>